0: From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast.
1: There were so many other amazing things to celebrate since Hamilton came out in, in last summer. I just didn't know that they would remember to do it. And I, I literally get choked up when I think about um, how special it is to allow us to have another opportunity to come together and just hug each other and celebrate something that we're so truly proud of. And, and uh, I just think it's a reward.
0: For Renee Elise Goldsberry, Hamilton is the gift that keeps on giving, including this year an Emmy nomination for the film version of the Broadway musical, which debuted on Disney Plus last year. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Emmy-nominated actor Renee Elise Goldsberry about Hamilton, Girls 5 Eva, how The Wiz made her fall in love with musicals, and working with Billy Porter. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast Roundtable, Cynthia Littleton joins us to talk about her Stephen Colbert cover story, and we look at the various drama acting categories. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey, everyone. It is time once again for the Roundtable. I'm Variety's Michael Schneider, joined, as always, by Danielle Terciano. Hello, Danielle. Hi. And Jazz Tanke. Hello. And we have a very special guest in the neighborhood this week. The one and only, the legend, Cynthia Littleton is here with us. Um, she's such a trooper in the middle of listening to earning reports, going to meetings, sitting in her car, <laughs> like struggling to, to, to find some time for us. And thank you so much, Cynthia, for doing so.
2: You're welcome. I'm only just sorry that I didn't come up with like a product placement deal considering that I'm in Beverly Hills surrounded by brands but I'm honored to be invited. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And one of the reasons why we wanted to have you this week was your fantastic cover story, the Stephen Colbert story, which was, I know, a labor of love for you to pull off. Uh, and it sounded like you also just had a blast doing it and, and really getting a chance to spend some time with Stephen Colbert, who's who's a really good dude. I
2: could not find any human to say a bad word about the man and we all have been covering entertainment long enough to know how rare that is he he really does seem to be the guy that you see on TV he he really does seem to be that guy and i it, it was a labor of love i joked i have been doing the research on this one for about 18 years cuz i can honestly say i have been a fan of his from the first his first appearances on the daily show there was just he was just He's just one of these people that just makes me laugh, and so it was. It was just a real treat. Um, very rare. They don't give. They don't typically. Ha- they don't do a lot of press. And I asked someone. I said, you know, I, I I assumed that Colbert just didn't like doing interviews as himself, and and I was said, no, that's not the case. We only do press when we need to, which is the most. Like that's a flex in Hollywood if you can only do it when you need to. And so that that was, you know, it was it so it was a it was a rare amount of access. I have I had worked on building relationships there, so it was definitely a lot of work that paid off. But it was just really, really exciting to get that kind of a deep behind the scenes look.
0: Yeah. And, and he was game down to that photo shoot where he's sitting on the marquee. And I mean, that's, that even just looked dangerous that, that he was willing to, to sit on the edge of that marquee at the Ed Sullivan Theater and, and get some really great shots for the magazine.
2: That was just that was just a great, great day. It was on a Friday morning, a beautiful June day in New York that not too not too muggy. It was, you know, kind of late morning and a variety shut down a stretch of a small stretch at the small stretch of Broadway in front of the Ed Sullivan Theater where Stephen Colbert uh, tapes and could not tape for almost a year and a half and it made him crazy as detailed in the story but then they were now that they're finally back there now going on uh, going into their fourth week they are back in the theater and Colbert and everyone out there just doing cartwheels they're so happy and so I, got, I have to give a shout out to Richard Maltz one of the great people in our art department that works tirelessly to create amazing photo shoots And Richard really knocked it out of the park with this one. And I don't, you know, great ideas often have many authors. I don't know exactly who came up with the idea, but but we knew that in Stephen Colbert we were going to have somebody who was game. Oftentimes a variety cover shoots can be tough because talent isn't always, you know, they, they don't want to, you know, ham it up sometimes, which is what you need for a magazine cover. With Stephen Colbert we had no worries about that. He was so game, and went up onto the Ed Sullivan Theater marquee with a, a stagehand, you know, that was crouching down and holding him to make sure CBS wasn't going to let us have their uh, late night host go up without any kind of protections or any
0: kind of safety. Yeah, that would that would have been a great story in itself, but thankfully uh, th- things worked out, and and no.
2: And so it was just really fun. We shut down the street. A crowd gathered. It just couldn't have been more organic and fun and people just love Stephen Colbert. It was, uh, it was just really a fun moment to be a part of.
0: Yeah, well I know Daniel and Jazz don't know at all what you're talking about when it comes to difficult talent. So <laughs> that's
3: but I honestly um, I had somebody who saw the photograph, just the photo by itself and thought it was photoshopped. They were like, "It's too good to be photoshopped. But there's no way he climbed up on that, right?" And so like to hear the, you know, hear you talk about the fact that he's game to do that is so nice for people to know, I think, because yeah, today in this day and age, you know, they don't have to do almost anything, because we can fake so much. So it's nice to hear people are willing to, you know, play along.
2: And he was just really, you know, he was just up about it. And you can, he was just in such a good mood. And he's just a happy person. And people say that he is that guy. But, but he's, he's that guy times 10 right now, because he is just, this man is so happy to be back with what he calls his dance partner, the audience. And until I really started interviewing him and really sit, sitting down to think about, you know, making this story coherent, um, I really, until I sat and talked with him, I really didn't appreciate how hard it had to be for a comedian to stand up and deliver jokes with no feedback whatsoever when for somebody like Colbert, who's not, Colbert is not a, did not come up as a traditional stand-up comedy. He came up in the improv world and that's a very different discipline, different, just whole different sort of career path and different mindset. And, um, so he's not a stand-up comedian, but he is absolutely works in front of a crowd. And losing that was just, he said he just felt like he just had no no feedback. He just was, uh, one of his writers said it was just like shouting jokes into a sock in the dark. I mean, just the level, you know, we all know they're comedians. Comedy people are a breed apart. They're, they are wonderful, emotional beings. And the loss of that audience, that nightly, the nightly show that comes when you go to a taping, you get a show, you get, you know, the band is playing, it's up, the people are running around, there's pages you know people are getting into seats there's an air of excitement all that was gone almost in an instant and it really is profound not just for Colbert it's been profound for a lot of performers but he is um I found I learned too that he's also he's a very intellectual guy and when you sit down to talk to him about something he really he takes his time to answer your questions To think he he gives you the respect of thinking about the question that you just asked him, and not just parroting the whatever talking point. Oh, talking point number ten sounds good for that, so I'll just say that. We've all been through those interviews. He, I, I know, I, I, really betraying, <laughs> betraying a little bias here because I just he just really was such a good interview, and on top of all you know the many testimonials to what a good human he is. It just made for a, it made for a, just a really great great interview and great experience.
0: Well, he went to Northwestern. So that's, you know, that explains a lot of it. But sorry, Jazz, what were you saying?
4: No, I was gonna say it was such a great cover and such a great interview to read. And even the video was so fascinating to watch. I mean, was this one of your first in person interviews after the pandemic? Because you
2: also flew back to New York for it too, right? So what was that like for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. I did, and it was it was nice because I spent most of the last seven years in New York, and then I actually relocated to the West Coast back in February, and it was really nice. My first time back in New York since moving, it was really nice to kind of just plop down and get get for a week and and just soak up that New York energy. It sounds like such a cliche, but it is so true that there's just something about being there. And, you know, and the city is certainly not what it was in 2019, but it's definitely, when I was back in June to do the Colbert reporting, it was definitely much better shape, especially Midtown where the Variety office is, much better shape than it was when I left in late January. So that was really nice to see. And um, it it is, certainly this was one of my, this was the first extensive in-person, go-to-the-set multiple times that type of interview. I have done a few, you know, more one-off, uh, sit down interviews, but this was the most extensive. And I did one side benefit was I'm at least in the second half of June, I was pretty sure I didn't have COVID cause I was having, uh, I was having at least one test a day for Colbert. And then I wormed in some other meetings and I had rapid tests for those. It was really, it, that, that was really an eye-opening experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of uh, Q-tips up the nose. So, let's uh one more thing about the interview, and then we'll move on to our topic of the week. Is my favorite, just because I'm such a geek for broadcasting, of course, is the anecdote of the the, the laptop, the the editor in their like house, and it was all about their Wi-Fi and the scramble to get the opening of an episode on the air and and the the entire CBS broadcast hinged on one guy in his house and his Wi-Fi, like pushing play and fingers crossed that this goes coast to coast. Uh, It's fly by the seat of your pants, but that was, you know, this past year.
2: What also struck me, especially because I was in New York and I was thinking about you know, Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca and Milton Berle in the late 40s and early 50s when they were literally inventing television and, you know, not within a, within short distance of where Colbert was, all these legendary things that they did, live TV without a net, experimental, let's see if it works, you know, um, the stories of the, early Milton Berle show that no longer exists or, you know, the things that he would do to himself to get a laugh, just incredible things. And I was thinking that talking to the Colbert people and not just Colbert, I want to be clear, like, you know, this was a Colbert story, but these, these stories of experimentation on the fly, I, I really think that these are, these are going to be books at some point because they're just, they're just so much pure ingenuity and purely out of necessity, people having to do stuff. So when I was talking to the Colbert people about these incredible things, like, like the day it's, it's written out in the story, but it basically they were ambitious and they were trying to render an animated segment, Stephen Colbert doing his monologue, but with animation and it, it, It just took they they it took twice as long for the rendering to happen. So they literally did that one that fourteen a fourteen minute segment. I believe it was May first, twenty twenty. His fourteen minute opening monologue was aired, literally powered by one editor's laptop in Chester, Connecticut, a bedroom community in Connecticut. And and the kicker is that uh, the producers got a very Scoldy note afterwards from CBS Broadcast Engineering's. This is not how we do things. But but Chris Lick, the executive producer of Colbert, said that he just he, he described this to me in great as as somebody who has a great you know when you have a good story to tell that it's a great story and and now that it's long past you can tell it with some verve because you're no longer like oh my god is my career over? Uh, he told it with a lot of uh, bravado, but at, at the point at which. They realized that it was going to go to get it on the air at the right time. It was going to have to air literally from the editor's laptop. He just sat there in his home in Manhattan, in his apartment, just sat rocking back and forth going, oh, dear God, oh, dear God, oh, dear God. Because if it had frozen, you can imagine we all would have written stories. It would have been what's going on at CBS. So, oh, my God. And I just I just love that they were willing
0: to do that. So great. So great. Well, let's shift gears now, uh, because we're going to be talking more about the talk show race in in future weeks as we sort of go down the list of categories and nominees this year. But this week, we're going to focus a little bit on the acting nominations in drama. So let's kick things off with lead actress in a drama series. We've got Uzo Aduba from In Treatment, who is a favorite with uh, Emmy voters. She's already won three Emmys, uh, been nominated for five. Uh, She's up against uh, the... The Crown's Olivia Colman, who has not won an Emmy, even though I've written about her in the past as being awards catnip. She's won plenty of other awards, but yet has not won an an Emmy. She's going to be up against her co-star, Emma Corrin, uh, her very first nomination ever, of course. And then you've got uh, another past winner, Elizabeth Moss, with The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, You've got another newcomer in MJ Rodriguez from Poe's final season. And then speaking of newcomers, uh, the one-and-done season of Lovecraft Country and Journey Smollett. Danielle, let's kick things off with you. Uh, I feel like you may have a favorite, but uh, surprise me.
3: Oh, favorite, not like what, what we think is going to happen.
0: Well, let's both.
3: Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think for so long we've been talking about Emma Corrin being a frontrunner, and I still think she is, but I think this wave of acknowledgement around the history that MJ Rodriguez has made puts her a lot more in, in the conversation, You know, last year there was a lot of talk about MJ not being nominated and her deserving it then. And obviously voters listened to a degree, I think, because they nominated her here. And now we're realizing, you know, she's the first trans performer to get nominated in a major acting category ever. And that's a huge deal. So on top of, you know, the work that she did, which should stand on its own, there's also this chance for them to actually make history again. And I I mean, I think that adds a lot more and complicates things a lot more for some voters.
0: Yeah. And like we've said in the past, timing is everything. And that post finale came at the right time. Uh, MJ even launched a music career, too, on top of it. So she really is everywhere. And and it does feel like a moment for her. Um, Jazz, your your thoughts.
4: Oh my gosh. Well, my favorite, I'm with Danielle, MJ Rodriguez. I think, you know, I actually Friday night rewatched the finale of Pose as you do on a Friday night, both <laughs> episodes. And that performance, the whole, her whole season has been incredible. And I think, you know, if voters are going to do something historic, I mean, such as voting for her, and nominating her then i feel like she has an edge right now although the crown you know i went down sunset boulevard on saturday night and it is basically netflix boulevard and they've got it everywhere so i don't know if that's going to make a difference whether people seeing it every the crown
0: well do we think they they do we think they cancel each other out you know, if, if they do cancel each other out, then that does open the door for MJ. Now, we also can't discount Uzo because, again, they love them some Uzo Duba over there at the TV Academy.
2: She is Emmy bait. I would just like to say that I have been covering the Emmys longer than Emma Corrin has been alive. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> oh, we're this going is there. Hum- we're going to oh, go this there. <laughs> this is very humbling. It's a—I mean, it it is— I would not want to be a voter because it's a really this is a Hobson's choice. I mean, they're all they're all, you know, in their own ways, very worthy, including Olivia Coleman, who is so good in that role. Um, and, it, and it's hard. I think the temptation is going to want to be. I think I agree with Danielle. I think that the not the temptation, but there's going to be a real motivation to recognize people. There's obviously been a lot of been a lot of focus. About that in recent award cycles. And I think that, that MJ turns in, in the final season. She's so, she, I mean, she always was the beating heart of it. But in this season, she really, you know, the storyline, it really, um, you know, she is, she's the story that, that she's the, that kind of goes off into the future. So I feel like it's kind of hers to, hers. She's the one to watch. I think that the, I also think Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth Moss can't be, can't be counted out. Handmaid's, um, cleaned up in nominations and that, that could absolutely be reflected. But if I had to, I would say for a multitude of reasons, MJ.
0: Yeah. And isn't it interesting? I mean, for the longest time, yeah, we were, we were talking about the crown, but honestly I could see MJ, I could see Elizabeth Moss, like you mentioned, um, just because again, that Handmaid's finale, everyone was talking about and still thinking about and it does feel like she's once again, everywhere. Um, Switching over to the lead actor on a drama series uh, side, uh, we've got uh, an old favorite, Sterling K. Brown, keep keeping the networks alive with This Is Us. Uh, you have uh, Jonathan Majors from Lovecraft Country. You've got Josh O'Connor from The Crown. Uh, Reggae jean Page, our, our favorite from Bridgerton there. Uh, Billy Porter, uh, previous winner from Pose. And Matthew Reese from uh, Perry Mason. So... This is another uh kind of difficult one to gauge because uh yeah, they, they could go the maybe Pose uh you know manages uh, you know, both. And and uh you know Billy Porter picks up another one. But everyone loves reggae and this is the only chance to award him uh, you know, his one and done Bridgerton experience. So uh Danielle, what what are you feeling at the moment?
3: It's interesting. I, I feel like this is like the actress category between the crown and pose. You know, we I, I feel like because Billy won in season one and has been nominated for every season, I almost feel like it's his to lose. He, his performance was so emotional and so moving in the final season. But Josh also came in very strong from The Crown when, when they moved him into lead and you know, seeing how much love he got at, at Winter Awards. like That's not really dying down in the way that I thought it might. But it also, to me, feels like We've talked about this before. If The Crown is the front runner in the drama series, how, what does that do? How does that affect the acting races? And I almost feel like here's a chance for them, you know, for voters to celebrate pieces of other shows that they really loved. If they're giving The Crown the drama series, they may give actor-actress elsewhere.
0: Jazz, you think uh, maybe a number of people are going to be like, you know what? I love me some reggae, John. <laughs> I know no one else is going to vote for him, but I'm going to. But then enough people do it that suddenly... He's up there on stage handing holding holding that trophy.
4: I don't know. I mean if this if this was the Saga Wars, maybe, but it's the Emmys and I don't see him being up there on stage come September, I think it is the Crown versus Pose. My only thing that I feel that Josh O'Connor has going against him is the Prince
2: Charles factor. Like you know, <laughs> and you root for him? Be like, what? Like, can I, I? I realize that this is like a, lo- a settled thing, but I just don't. As good as he was, and his character was important, but I wouldn't. I didn't think of him as a lead. I didn't think of him as a lead. Whereas I did think I felt like Diana. You know, Charles existed in maybe this is something to their marriage. You know, Charles existed in her orbit, and. But just in the in the show itself, I felt like um I felt like like O'Connor wasn't wasn't a classic lead, but then, you know, we'd need a whole other podcast to talk about the politics of, you know, who who applies for what, uh, who submits for what category.
3: I mean, to be fair, I, I was very surprised when they pushed him into lead this year. I mean In winter award season, I was still saying, I was still writing things about him and supporting, and Netflix had to email me and be like, no, we're gonna move him to lead this year. It was like, oh, okay. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as big, let's say, a performance as some of the other ones, but I don't know, I just feel we talked about it more than some of the other ones. But I do feel that narrative is
4: shifting from Josh. To Billy, like I see more people talking about it, and so I don't know if that will sway in Billy's favor. Um, I just feel sorry for Sterling K. Brown. Like you know, he's been great, and there he is, perpetually nominated, never the winner.
0: well um, uh, he's he's won two Emmys. He's but, yeah. well, okay, he's, got he's got two, but it's been a while.
3: <laughs> it's been a while, but
0: <laughs> it has been. But he's he's Bye. He, and, and he'll have more wins for other things in the future. Uh, you know, it's uh, I don't feel quite as bad. I do feel bad for the Lovecraft Country folks because I do yes, feel I in those cases uh, the, the nomination is going to be the win for them. Uh, you know, particularly now that the show's not continuing, um, that's just the, the state of it all. They're they're all going to have to be just satisfied with being there, being nominated. But um, I think the, the chances of wins are, are are slight for for any of them. And, um, Sorry,
3: two two thousand and seventeen for Sterling K. Brown, right? Was his mm-hmm. last one? It was, yeah, it was for his first season. I, that's the thing. I I was hoping that this would be the start of something for Lovecraft. You know, you know, they went drama, even though they weren't officially renewed, and then they got canceled after voting. And so it was like, well, I'm glad that everybody celebrated them right from the jump, especially because this is the only opportunity now to celebrate it at all. But I I don't know. There's something about it I haven't fully mourned yet because I kept saying, no, they won't win this year. They'll get nominated. But it's a good groundswell for next year. You know, it's good momentum for next year. And there is no next year. And I'm still very mad about it.
0: Yeah. So I think that's where we kind of have to leave it with with them. But uh, I do I do sense that just. The emotional reaction to the post finale uh, and and sort of the, you know, overall sort of feeling of that series and what that series meant to people is going to be enough to perhaps give both MJ and Billy Porter the wins, um, you know, and votes could be split. And again, that means maybe Crown still wins as best drama. But this is how voters also honor Pose is by giving the two stars their Emmys. So that would be interesting. And I think kind of a smart split, it, you know, this is a massive body. So you know, they, they, they can't like move en masse and mass and think that way. But maybe enough of them will that that's how it's going to, to play out.
2: May I just say, as I literally, as I literally pull into a Beverly Hills parking garage going to, (laughs) heading to a meeting, may I just say, I have been an enormous fan of Journey Smollett since Friday Night Lights. Her first episode, I was like, this, this woman is talented and going places. And I am, I agree with Danielle. I feel like, um, it is a shame that, you know, it's like, oh, it's just getting started. And that was a cancellation that surprised me, but, Anyway, as I am about to lose my Wi-Fi, thank you all for having me. I'm sorry to See, be so See, that's a tough. good Absolutely. exit. That's a good exit, whereas last <laughs> I week I love was it. gone. So on the move.
0: Yeah. Make sure, if you haven't already, go check out Cynthia's cover story over at Variety.com. Stephen Colbert, Danielle, what were you going to say?
3: Oh, no, I was going to say I would like to raise Cynthia and be like, I was a fan of Journey since Full House, but I don't think we talk about that anymore because Full House. So it's okay. <laughs>
0: What was that ABC, that TGIF show that a uh, bunch got of the did? I got to see did? it.
3: Yeah, it was, it was like the whole family, and they played siblings, and I don't remember the name of it, but I, I also don't think I ever got a chance to watch it for whatever reason, because it was, I think, one season.
0: Yeah, it, it didn't last long, but go to YouTube, and you can sort of, uh, it's, it's classic 90s cheese from the TGIF era. But um, thanks again, Cynthia, for for stopping by, and we will continue now talking about the supporting uh, categories in drama. Kicking off with the supporting actress, we've got um, basically just three shows among eight categories, so this will be interesting to see how people split their votes. Uh, from The Crown, we've got Julian Anderson, Helena Bonham Carter, and Emerald Fennell, from Handmaid's Tale, we got Madeline Brewer, we've got Ann Dowd, we've got Yvonne Strahovski, and we've got Samira Wiley. And then from Lovecraft Country, uh, I am going to screw up how to pronounce her first name. Danielle, you know how to pronounce? Uh,
3: I think it's Anjanue Ellis.
0: Ingenue Ellis. I, I might be
3: pronouncing it wrong as well, and I, if I am, I apologize. I don't think anyone's ever said her name out loud to me, which is a huge problem.
0: I think Anjanu sounds about right, though. So we've got those eight. So where do we, I mean, again, this is one of those categories. It's sort of hard to see where where people split their votes and and what that means for for these contenders, Danielle.
3: I mean, I would love, you know, last year there was so much vote splitting that Julia Garner got to break through. And Julia Garner was great, don't get me wrong. But I think a lot of her win came from the fact that there were so many competing co-stars splitting people's votes. So, I mean, I would love to see that here because then there's one for Lovecraft and she was phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. It's not just about, you know, being the one and and celebrating the show. It's also about that performance. But I feel like similarly to what we were talking about with uh, Lovecraft in the other categories, for these other actors who are sharing the space, like your nomination is your win because... You're, you're inherently taking a lot of the same... The same people who voted for you in, in the first round also voted for your co-stars because they proved they watched your show and they probably didn't watch a whole lot of other shows. But to ask them to pick one from that show is a lot harder to do. So I don't know. I mean, I for the longest time, I felt like Gillian Anderson was, um, you know, almost a sure thing coming off of all the winter stuff. But because not one, but two of her co-stars made it in. I think it's a little harder to say that right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Jazz. This is, this is a tough one.
3: I mean, I don't
4: know. I still think it's Julian Anderson's to lose. Like, I feel like that portrayal, like when you mentioned the crown, when you mentioned this season, like that performance is so strong. And it was such a spot on performance of Thatcher that I really, I don't know. I just think hers is the strongest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think this may be one of those categories where because it is it is a tough uh, field, maybe that's sort of the default for folks. But you you can't discount Anne Dowd, first off, um, just just because she is sort of the actor's actor. Um, you know who doesn't uh, just like respect and, and admire and Dowd and what she's done in recent years with shows like The Leftovers and of course Handmaid's Tale um, can't discount Samira Wiley uh, another sort of favorite out there and if if there's a little bit of a Handmaid's Tale bump then uh, you know she also could uh, you know, score if if not and Dowd um, but then again, maybe they all cancel each other out for Handmaid's Tale actors. So that That is tough.
3: I almost feel like it's, I don't want to get into your territory, Mike, where I'm like, more categories. But I'm also <laughs> just like, this is unfair. <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how they feel. I think maybe they're just happy that they're celebrated alongside people they love and work with. But like, to me, I look at it and I'm like, this is unfair.
0: Yeah. No, it's 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 a tough one. Um, the supporting actor category just just as difficult uh, because you have a few more shows, but again, you've got you've got uh, you know one of my favorites, Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, you know, repping for Mandalorian this year, just as I'm sure he'll be repping for Better Call Saul again next year. Um, And then you've got uh, John Lithgow, an old favorite of the Academy. He's won six times over the years, uh, this this time out for Perry Mason. You've got uh, Tobias Menzies for The Crown. You've got Chris Sullivan for This Is Us. (laughs) So, you know, even This Is Us uh, sneaks in there um, with a a little bit of a surprise nom. Uh, Bradley Whitford, another classic, uh, you know, uh, know, he's won three times in the past. Uh, He's got The Handmaid's Tale along with uh, Max Minghella. And uh, O.T., again, don't know necessarily how to pronounce his last name, uh, Fajbenle. Is that as good as anyone will get? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they love them. The Handmaid's Tale at the TV Academy. Go figure. It's what it's, it's 20th season and somehow it still manages to get nominations. So good on it. Uh, and then of course, Michael K. Williams for Lovecraft country. I love Michael K. Williams and that's fun to see him nominated there too. Um, but again, kind of another jump ball here.
3: I don't know. It feels a little, less complicated because there are more different or there are more shows represented. And so there's a wider berth of what did you have to do this year represented. Um, but I'm going to go back to Lovecraft on this one. I, I mean, you know, he, Michael is just such a consistently amazing performer that I feel like it's been a shame that he hasn't been celebrated more. Um, and I feel like this, year, yes, he was great in Lovecraft, and it's, again, it should stand on its own, but there's also a little bit of a, you can, maybe you're retroactively celebrating him for all those other things you didn't before. You know, I don't, I don't know how much that comes into play these days, the way that perhaps it has historically with Oscars, for example. Um, That's a conversation we don't have to get into here, but... I, that's that's something that stood out to me a lot when I looked at this ballot, because again, I do think handmaids will cancel each other out. I mean, I think of the three, Bradley has the best shot, but I do think there will be some people that they either cancel them them out or they just say, oh, I don't want to pick one, you know, similar to what I was saying about the women.
0: Yeah. So maybe, maybe Michael K. Williams, this he finally sort of gets an Emmy also for The Wire through... Lovecraft and, country, um, and, when and they see else.
3: us, you know, just all of it,
0: just yeah. put it all yeah. in one. Yeah, jazz. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, no, I think Michael is was phenomenal in Lovecraft. I think this is where it can win, and also it's a chance for him to make history in this field um, by becoming like the first black winner in the category, right? If I'm not mistaken.
3: Well, I don't know that's that off the top of my head. Maybe, prob- honestly, probably, because let's look at his history, and, I, I you know, let's be honest, it has been very white-dominated. Yeah,
4: but I think, you know, I mean, his performance is unforgettable, and it's not just, you know, we were saying it's not just in the show, but everything he's been in, so I think he's, he's going to, everybody else will cancel everyone out, and he triumphs.
0: My fear, and I, and and I don't know if fear is the right word because you know I like Bradley Whitford. Um, You know, I'm I'm a fan, but it feels like that might be the safe choice, and my you know. uh I fear that's maybe where where people go. I mean, it would be fun to see. I mean, I would love to see Michael K. Williams pick it up or Giancarlo, for that matter, who still has never won an Emmy. Um, It would be sort of fascinating that he ends up winning an Emmy for The Mandalorian as opposed to all of his other work, including, you know, anything in the Breaking Bad universe. But, you know... The Emmys sometimes work in mysterious ways. So, you know, this uh, uh, and then, of course, you know, maybe they just end up giving it to John Lithgow. Um, <laughs>
3: I mean, I do feel like what I said <laughs> about Michael also applies to Giancarlo. So, like, honestly, yeah.
0: So, yeah, I have my hopes and then I have my fears in this category. But we shall see. And I think that's where we should leave it here. On to more categories next week. But uh, until then, Jazz and Danielle, great to talk to you. And we'll uh, catch up with you next week. After the break, Emmy nominee Renee Elise Goldsberry is back. And this time marveling at the continued impact of Hamilton. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Renee Elise Goldsberry is on a career trajectory from Hamilton to Girls 5 Eva to the upcoming She-Hulk TV series and What If from fellow Emmy nominee Billy Porter. Goldsberry is now Emmy-nominated in the supporting actress in a limited or anthology series or movie category for Hamilton. She originated the role of Angelica Schuyler on Broadway and won the Tony for it in 2016.
1: Angelica Schuyler. Yeah. A toast to the groom to the groom to the groom to the bride to the bride from your sister Angelica is always by your, side, by your side to your union to the, you- you- to
2: you-
4: the revolution and the hope that you provide.
0: Hamilton received 12 Emmy nominations from the TV Academy this year, including Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. in the lead actor in a limited or anthology series or movie category for their performances as Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, respectively, as well as editing, sound mixing, and tech directing nods. A few weeks ago, we talked to Goldsberry and her Girls5eva co-stars about that Peacock comedy. Now, Variety's Jazz Tanke speaks again to Goldsberry, but this time about the lasting impact of Hamilton, as well as career advice, working with Billy Porter, and much, much more. Jazz began by simply asking Goldsberry how she's doing.
1: So good. I was just with a friend who said, you're living the dream. And sometimes you need a friend to tell you that because um, when she said it, I said, you know what? I think I am. That's that's pretty much how it feels. Um, I'm I'm really you know, so grateful to have this Emmy nomination. It's sometimes I wake up and kind of pinch myself. I'm like, I can't believe it, especially because I I didn't really see it coming. And I'm excited for an opportunity to see my friends again from that show and (laughs) really shocked that there's yet another opportunity in the world to to celebrate this that I'm so proud of. First
4: of all, I want to congratulate you on your Emmy nomination. I have... Ah!
1: Yes. Always exciting to hear that. Thank you.
4: <laughs> 12 nominations for Hamilton. What were you doing that morning? That
1: I was on set. I was in a hair trailer on set trying to brace myself to, you know, to, you know, to not be nominated for anything this year. Um, and it was a little harder this year because I had a lot of love going into it. Um, and it's funny, it's ironic to say that it's harder because I had love going into it. But I've been, you know, doing television for a while and um, and submitting for the Emmys for a while. And this is the first year where a lot of people, you know, were telling me, you know, this could really happen. You could really get a nomination for Girls 5 Viva. It's really wonderful. People really love it. And, uh, and even for Hamilton. And also... Um, I narrated uh, a PBS special on Marian Anderson. So I actually had three opportunities. and um, I was bracing myself to get three no's. <laughs> so and and actually the hamilton um the the my award is not uh, mentioned on television. they they put that that nomination online. So I didn't know for quite some time that i that I was nominated. and it was a gift from God to get that 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 news. Oh my gosh. I know. That's the one
4: thing I wish the Emmys would do. It's like, please read everything or like, you know, you're scrambling through the categories. It's like, does anybody have a single PDF? <laughs> like you can see all the nominations in one go. Um, <laughs> but I'm very happy for you and the cast of Hamilton. Why do you think this resonated with Emmy voters and just the, the audience, you know, the public in general, given like last year, I mean, it's been a year now since it's been out, and we're in a lockdown, no theater, crazy administration going on.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> well, Lena, you know, I say that I was really blindsided and surprised by a Hamilton nomination and the number of Hamilton nominations, but it's not because I didn't think that Hamilton was worthy of being recognized, um, on that level. It's just because of the amount of time it had been since it came out. And I just didn't think anybody remembered or cared because it was a, it was a challenging summer and people were really, people seemed to be, you know, really excited about moving on. Um, but I, but I, but I really do feel and not, not even for me in general, but really for the producers, they, first of all, they, they did a beautiful job of, 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 of saving that theater piece. And then the ultimate gift I thought was to choose to release it in the summer of 2020. I mean, it, the intention around, I believe, the intention around filming it was to put it on a screen, a big screen, and all really get to see what a theater piece could do at a movie theater. That that was the intention. And they abandoned it. They pivoted really hard because it was COVID 2020. And it just, in the time where everybody was hiding and hoarding, um, they <laughs> decided to do something that I I quite frankly wasn't, 100% happy about, to be honest. Um, and that is to, to put it out on, on on Disney plus and not because I didn't want it to be on Disney plus and I didn't feel like the world, world should have it. It was really just a selfish I'm gonna be on Zoom for three months and not gonna get to see any of my friends, not to, not to get to celebrate it. it'll it, it's I just there's a lot of really wonderful things about sitting in a being in an audience with the cast that you did it with. That's what you get in television and and in film. You get to be an audience member also, and you get to see everyone's work. And I was excited about being able to do that with this company. And uh, and something else was more important than that, and that was uh, giving, a, you know, giving some art into the summer of 2020. It was a beautiful thing to do, and I just didn't, I didn't know that that the Emmy, <laughs> um, you know, the people voting the te- that the Television Academy would, um, would, you know, there was so many other amazing things to celebrate since Hamilton came out in, in last summer. I just didn't know that they would remember to do it. And I, I, I would, I literally get choked up when I think about, um, how special it is to allow us to have another opportunity to come together and just hug each other and celebrate something that we're so truly proud of. And, and, uh, I just think it's a reward.
4: <laughs> yeah. I love that. My, my biggest question when, when, when it, rocked on uh on disney plus was i wonder how many people are sitting there weeping their eyes out during its quiet uptown because when you're in the th- <laughs> when you're in the theater like there's that moment and everybody's weeping together and like you said like you missed that but just the way they captured you know that theatrical experience is bringing us bringing it into our homes was magic, you know,
1: it's, um, it's, mad, it's magic. I think Tommy kale did such a beautiful job of taking Glenn Manuel Miranda's, you know, prize piece and, uh, and translating it for film. I mean, I was, I was scared to death the first time I watched it. I was like, Oh God, what if it's not great? What if it's terrible? It's, it is hard to capture the magic of theater. Um, and I, I just didn't know that it, that it would work. And when I saw it, I just was dumbfounded. I thought it was beautiful. And I did get to experience something I never had experienced before. And, and, uh, and I can't believe that you can always, because we're in a world of streaming platforms, <laughs> that something that was famous for being this exclusive ticket is just sitting there every minute of every day right now for the past over a year, in case anybody might want to just see it's quiet uptown, just that's it. I just want to see it's quite a That's it. You know, the fact that it's just sitting there accessible to everybody for the price of that subscription feels like another thing that's, that's, you know, it's just what art should always be. I think yeah, available.
4: <laughs> I think what I, what, what was so great about this show though, and it's, and through this, uh, for the streaming service too, is that everybody at Hamilton always found a way to give like, you know there was the ham for ham on the streets, and yes. you know, and now you have this again, giving to the fans, but also to audiences. I mean, do you have a favorite fan moment or a favorite message that you received that really inspired you?
1: Since, uh, since yes, uh, since a this friend. Dropped? Yeah, since it dropped. Oh, my God, I, I'm going to send you this because I, I think you should show this picture. I, mean, I this is not even a video interview, but I wish you could see it. it's the strongest, most beautiful image. Randomly, uh, a friend texted me from through a friend and a friend and a friend. It's uh, a little black girl who is full on dressed up as Angelica Schuyler, and she is embracing this television um, and there's, and I'm on the screen on the television singing satisfied. It's like a, it's like a close-up of me and like a pr- pretty ugly s- singing face. And she's literally completely dressed like me and she's, and she's holding the television looking up at me. Like I can't even talk about, it. like, I, it's just the strongest image I've ever seen of how powerful it is to be in somebody's living room, <laughs> you know, um, just this little girl, like to be, I mean, that was the thing coming on, on Disney. People kept saying, did you ever think you'd be a Disney princess? No, you know? Um, but in a way, because we got to be a part of that, that family on television, it felt like being a Disney princess and it, and it felt like, um being a Disney princess that like many different kinds of little girls and boys could see themselves in you know, even yes. with the corset on there was something there that they could identify with and and uh that probably hit me the strongest. oh my gosh,
4: that's just so adorable and that's just the power of TV, right because a parent probably wouldn't have brought their kid to see Hamilton at the theater but, because it's it was brought into a home as they could. Um, you mentioned satisfied, and I know everybody always asks you about the rap, but was there anything else that was a challenge? Like, was there another number or a line that you were like, oh my gosh, forget satisfied, forget the rap. This is the one that actually gives me
1: a little bit of anxiety sometimes. Honestly, the greatest anxiety I ever had playing Angelica wasn't satisfied, but it wasn't the rap. It was the uh, singing the end of the song um, because I was so emotional. Um, It's, you know, experiencing. I I did finally get to experience it from the outside looking in. But from the inside looking out, um, Andy Blankenbuehler is just we call him a mad scientist. He's the choreographer. And he. He did some really—I mean—that's that's that's the beauty of people that couldn't get to see it um, in the theater, but knew the music really well from the cast recording. Um, They didn't understand that visually it was just as powerful as it is, you know, or orally and he um, he he basically created pictures that I see from the center of the stage that are really moving. And at, there's a moment at the end where Alexander is standing in a spotlight on one side of the stage and Eliza is in a spotlight on the other side of the stage and everything and every, the entire cast is frozen and this gorgeous lighting from Hal Binkley. And, um, and I have to make a decision <laughs> to give the love of my life away to my sister. Um, I just, and then they start moving on and kissing and going off one of the sunset and I, I'm standing there alone on a stage. It used to be really hard to make sound <laughs> <laughs> um, after emotionally experiencing that moment. It felt like it, it really, it was, I had to sing the loudest and the highest, and it was the, the, the highest pitched emotionally as well. And I used to be concerned that sound wouldn't come out. <laughs> So that was always the thing I used to, I used to say, I'm going to write a, a autobiography called After Satisfied, <laughs> because that was the moment in the show where I could chill out and enjoy the rest of it if I made it through the end of that song.
4: Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm looking forward to the autobiography. Um, what was it <laughs> like watching, watching it for the first time from the outside looking in as opposed to being on stage? And
1: I, you know, it's just a big aha moment. Um, I, uh, I mean, after I got over the very self-absorbed, okay, you know, I'm not terrible in this. The next, um, the next thing was just, you know, cheering for my company members and how beautiful their performances are and that they're saved forever. And then cheering for, you know, Tommy Kale and, and, and how, how kind he was, how, how he took care of us. You know, I'm sure he had to edit around a lot of faces, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And I remember cheering. I, I saw uh, the Skylar sisters, um, uh, moment and, um, I know how much real love we have for each other, the three of us. I know that, um, the legacy that we wanted to leave that show when we left was that the women would love and lift each other up in every moment, no matter who was playing those parts, that, that that would be what was inherited you know, and, uh, and we just had a tremendous amount of, of, uh, girl joy. (laughs) Um, I I wanted it. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be there on film. And when the number was over and we kind of laugh and double over the way we did and run off, I just cheered in my sunroom because it's there. It's there on screen. I love that.
4: But I was reading that you almost didn't audition for Hamilton so we could in a weird alternative universe we might not be having (laughs) having this conversation (sighs) it's so hard to imagine you not being in Hamilton like that ever happening but tell that story
1: of well you know I I probably go kicking and screaming into every blessing in my life um you know which is crazy Uh, you know it's 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 uh, I just didn't think I would get the job. I heard about it. I was a huge fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I was a huge fan of that team I saw in the Heights. I was I was a stalker fan, Um, but it just didn't seem reasonable that they would cast me (laughs) to play a young you know, Nicki Minaj type. I just didn't, I didn't think, I thought I was too old for that. I didn't, I didn't think they would consider me. And that's why I always tell people, don't say no to yourself. Um, and also I just had brought, you know, my daughter home. I just, my, my, my true dream come true is my family. And um, I have this beautiful baby girl and a young son and husband. And I, I thought that, that the, the answer to my prayers, you know, you know, I just got the answer to my prayers and it was time to be at home for a while bonding with my family. And um, and then I heard the demo of Lin-Manuel Miranda singing Satisfied and I cursed out loud because <laughs> I think an <laughs> expletive was the only thing I could, you know, utter to, you know to kind of grasp how awesome that song is. And I went to that audition (laughs) and thank God I got that rap out and they gave me the job. And the rest is history.
4: Um, The rest is history. What's the advice that you would give to, you know, you gave a little bit of, it's just that it's like young performers and actresses out there, whether it's getting into theater or TV or movie, like what would you tell them?
1: Make friends (laughs) wherever you are, anyone that's around you, not people that are, that you think are important. Everyone that's around you is an ally um, and be, be an ally to them, help people move forward. You know, don't only think about yourself, make friends, uh, be excited about other people's success, be inspired by them and uh, keep showing up, show up afraid, but you know, show up prepared. And show up afraid is fine, but show up and you never know what's going to happen. Um, and I keep doing that and I keep pinching myself that I'm still here, that I'm, I'm still able to, you know, play roles that I wouldn't have thought anybody would give me still, you know. Um, yeah, that's what that's what I keep doing. And I, and I hope I hope that that people um, see my career and and don't, and they don't think, oh, well, of course. I just don't think that's me. Oh, well, of course she would get this. You know, I, I, that wouldn't happen for me. I think you should see my career and be like, if it happened for her, then surely I can do it.
4: <laughs> you know? <laughs> I love
1: that. I love that.
4: Um, speaking of, you know, female friendships earlier. Girls 5 ever. I mean, that's another pandemic gift that you gave us that had us laughing, <laughs> that have, you know, I have wrinkle lines and because of that show, sure, laughing so much. Um, <laughs> you know, what was that like working on that? You know, during the pandemic too, when your COVID protocols left, right and center, but it looks, I mean, we did the round table a couple of weeks ago and, you know, the hilarity, you know, being <laughs> on a Zoom. Like, what was that like shooting that and being, you know, working with busy, working with Sarah, working, you know, with everybody on that show?
1: I remember I did a play called Good People, which is a really, really brilliant play by David Lindsay Abair. Francis McDormand won a Tony for it. Um, And I remember um, one of my friends in the show said to me when it was over, Oh my God, Renee, this is it. This is as good as it gets. You know, this is it. We just did the pinnacle of our life. This great play. It's, this is it. And I look back and I'm like, oh my God, the Lord must've been laughing because Hamilton was in my future, you know? And when I, uh, I feel that way, when I show when I think about Girls5eva and the love I have for those women, the love I have for this character Wiki that I play, the love I have for the show and the love the show is getting from people that watch it, it makes, it reminds me of, of how foolish it would have been to think that the greatest thing I could ever be a part of was Hamilton. Like there is, there are so many brilliant storytellers out there telling so many different kinds of stories Um, and it. It's never, it's, you know, never assume that that's as good as it gets. Cause there's another, there's something else out there for you. I mean, I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with girls five ever, but I know that it is a gift to me to be able to stand with those girls. They're brilliant and hilarious. And Meredith Scardino is a genius. And, uh, You know, I just, uh, you know, Tina Fey, Robert Karlach, like this team, it's another family of um, really brave and innovative storytellers that are doing something that I thought was a little bit scary. You know, I'm going to admit, I was a little bit like, are we making fun of women getting older or are we celebrating them? And I think the truth about comedy is we're always right on that line. Um, We're always right on that line. And the end of the day, we net out with um, women lifting up women and um, exposing some truths that we were not aware of. But how much
4: fun was it to do those flashbacks? And, you know, just they look like ridiculous fun, like behind the scenes.
1: Did you ever see the show Carol Burnett, the Carol Burnett show? Yes. Are you yes. too young for that? No, I've um, seen it
4: in reruns.
1: You've seen it in reruns. There was a show yes. called the Carol Burnett show. And part of the fun, other than the genius of the actors and the comedy, was watching them try not to laugh. <laughs> that's, that's what shooting girls five Eva is. It's like, you know, how many takes can we blow? Because I'm laughing hysterically at these women or the ridiculous thing I'm about to say with a straight face.
4: <laughs> i love that oh my gosh if, here's what needs to happen in season two bob mackie needs to do There needs to be a yes! some kind of bob mackie kind of carol burnett tribute kind of thing i don't know that's genius <laughs> um see i i know my carol burnett shows um but when did let's go back when did you first fall in love with musicals like Was it watching TV or like, you know, the movies on TV or like, was it actually going to the theater like where did that begin it's
1: funny that you say that because my normal answer is typically when I was eight years old and my mom put us in theater school to get us from you know sitting at home watching tv all summer um and I did a production of guys and dolls and I was in the ensemble and I just fell madly in love with coming together with a group of people to do a play and I just didn't want it to be over that's my normal answer but you asked a question that because no one ever assumes that you could fall in love with musicals from television And now I'm remembering seeing The Wiz, you know, now I'm remembering seeing The Wizard of Oz. Now I'm remembering um, something that really makes this moment of celebrating Hamilton with an Emmy nomination full circle. And that is that really um, I didn't get to see or be in a show probably until after I had seen a musical on television. Um, My entire life has been, you know, the backdrop of it has been the Grease musical on TV, you know, or, um, not in the movie theater. Like I saw it on TV a million times, you know, and fell in love with Olivia Newton, John and John Travolta on TV. Um, dirty dancing was my entire high school time. We was, we watched it like the video, the VCR tape of dirty dancing over and over and over and over again. These are musical television, um, events that really just, you know, set, the world on fire, at least my world on fire. Um, and you know, that happens again all the time for my children with, you know, so many musical television shows. So, um, I, I, I'm going to say that maybe it was actually seeing the whiz on television.
4: I love that. Oh my gosh. I've got to go back and watch the whiz now on TV. I haven't seen it for years, but you always remember that first time you see the whiz and I love it. Oh, episode. my
1: God. Seeing seeing so many beautiful people of color singing and dancing these brilliant songs and brilliant choreography and and really beautiful, positive messages and danger and all of these things. And, you know, we would we would watch it and then we had the cassette tape and we just made up our own versions of those numbers over and over and over again. We did it with all of those musicals. And and uh, I can't believe I'm I guess it's it's dawning on me that maybe kids are doing that with Hamilton.
4: They're doing TikTok performances now. They're not even making mixtapes. Remember how we used to make mixtapes on like the
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
4: Kids don't even. They have it so easy nowadays. Um, But (laughs) what are you listening to? Like, what's on your your playlist?
1: Um, Honestly, I'm I'm listening to I'm 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 writing and recording an album, so I spend a lot of time. Uh, just listening to, you know, singer songwriters that I love, like Sarah borellis for example. Um, you know, women that have been in this Brandy Carlisle, women that have been in this space um in very unique ways that are kind of unapologetically who they are, very signature to them. I'm I'm really inspired, inspired by them as I as I dream. My biggest dream right now is 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 releasing this album and and having my own stories out there. I think there's nothing more powerful than that.
4: Watch this space. And you're working with fellow Emmy nominee, uh, Billy Porter on his.
1: I am. Oh my God. I I forgot that's out in the press. You know, I'm Billy, you know, is also a a college friend of mine. Uh, We went to Carnegie Mellon at the same time. And uh, honestly, when he asked me to be a part of this film, I just, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I, I did understand. I didn't, I didn't know what the story was. I did read the script and it's beautiful. Um, and most importantly, I just said to him, I want to be anywhere near what you're doing. I'm so proud of him and what he's doing and anything that I can do just so that I can be somewhere, you know, somewhere near him, cheer, cheering him on is, is, uh, is exactly where I'm supposed to be.
0: That's Renee Elise Goldsberry, Emmy nominated for Hamilton, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.